Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. The prostate is a small, walnut-sized gland that functions in the male reproductive system. Although the gland generally remains stable until men reach their mid-40s, changes begin to occur as they age. My guest today is Dr. Keith Kowalczyk, Director of Urologic Oncology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. He will explain why and how a healthy lifestyle can help promote good prostate health. He'll also talk about common prostate problems, including causes, risk factors, and signs and symptoms, in addition to diagnostic tests and treatments for prostate cancer. So welcome, Dr. Kowalczyk, and thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much, Cheryl. Happy to be here. Probably the best way to start this interview is for you to give us a bit of an anatomy uh, and physiology lesson. So let's begin by having you explain what is the prostate gland and where is it located and what's its function? Well, you gave us a good primer already uh, by giving it. It is a small walnut-shaped gland uh, which sits underneath the bladder in men. Women do not have prostates. Uh, It is connected to the bladder in a way right where the bladder funnels down into the urethra where men empty their urine through. Uh, So it actually, the bladder empties through the middle of the prostate, almost like a tunnel. So within the prostate as well is where the ejaculatory ducts uh, for, you know, male ejaculation come in. So not only do, do we urinate through our prostate, but that's also where ejaculation comes from. And the main function of the gland is really to facilitate semen production. It, it, it produces a lot of the fluid that's in semen. Um, so it's, it's really a male reproductive organ. Um, as, as, it gets, as we get older, it does get bigger. And because of that, it blocks the bladder. So that's why it's also associated with urinary symptoms. But that's the main thing is the prostate is kind of very intimately involved with the bladder. It sits right underneath it and the bladder funnels right through the middle of it as we urinate. So let's, since I mentioned about prostate health, let's start about talking about the healthy aspects as first. So how about diet and nutrition? Does, does that affect prostate health? And, and I've also read something about dietary supplements. So um, give us a little insight in terms of those two factors and its impact on prostate health. So as everything, you know, there's no one specific dietary magic pill for the prostate. Uh, those are very hard things to, to study. Um, but overall, I think everyone can agree that, you know, a heart healthy or healthy lifestyle will lead to improved uh, 
cardiovascular as well as prostate health. So as far as a healthy prostate with enlarging prostates, which is the, what, what most men will get, um, actually having high blood sugars at, uh, uh, and obesity are both associated with increased risk of an enlarging prostate. Um, so overall, we want a nice, healthy diet. We, we are, are associated with the Mediterranean diet, which has a high intake of fish, fruits, and vegetables, has been associated with decreased risk of benign prostatic hyperplasia, which is an enlargement of the prostate, as well as a decreased risk of prostate cancer. Whereas high consumption of animal protein, saturated fats, refined sugars, even high calcium doses if people are on a lot of calcium supplementation, those have kind of independently uh, been associated with, not a clear correlation, but associated with uh, increased prostate cancer risk. So it, it's hard to say that there's one thing that we can take as a supplement that will reduce any risk of any kind of prostate disease. Uh, but overall, just a heart healthy Mediterranean diet that's high in fish, fruits, vegetables, uh, and low in, in animal proteins and saturated fats has been associated with better prostate health in addition to better overall health. And I would suspect then what what you're going to say, but I'm going to just verify it, that increased activity and exercise, that also impacts prostate health? What would you tell us? A hundred percent. You know, as I mentioned, obesity is associated with increased uh, risk of having a large prostate. It's actually also increased uh, increases the risk of an, a more aggressive prostate cancer uh, and having worse outcomes when men are diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, so certainly any exercise that people can get is associated with it, it better prostate health. Um, but also any exercise will reduce your risk. It doesn't have to, you don't have to be, you know, a triathlete or, or anything like that. Even just taking daily walks for 30 minutes has been associated with improved prostate health as well as decreased risk of prostate cancer. So, you know, I don't think that that's, you know, targeted to the prostate in general, but it's just the whole body. Uh, if you have a healthy lifestyle and, and less obesity leads to less inflammation, is going to lead to general overall health, and that includes the prostate. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about mental health, stress and anxiety. Wondering, particularly right now, since we've all been cooped up for a year and our stress levels and the possibility of depression might have increased, could those factors also affect prostate health? It could. I mean, that that's obviously a very complicated subject. Um, I think stress, overall stress is going to decrease our overall health in general. And as far as that's associated with the prostate, that can actually increase what we would call lower urinary tract symptoms. So, you know, the symptoms that are associated with an enlarged prostate, difficulty urinating, uh, frequency of urination and things like that. And I have seen that in some patients. And, and the reason why is increased stress will increase your sympathetic nervous system, which actually increases the tension in our pelvis, uh, the muscles in the pelvis. And while it might not actually lead to an increased prostate, it simulates those those symptoms of having to strain uh, through those uh, strain. When you go to the bathroom, you're, you're straining against those muscles to empty your bladder. Uh, so that certainly could happen um, as well as, you know, that stress will irritate the bladder and the nervous system will make the bladder you know, feel the, the urge to go to the bathroom more frequently. So, you know, increased stress, that can certainly affect overall bladder and prostate health. And that's a good lead-in to uh, my next question, which is about problems with the prostate gland. You already 
talked about frequently going to the bathroom. Are there other physiological functions that um, show themselves uh, if there begins to be pro- uh, problems with the prostate gland? Well, the, the, the first problems that men will see if they have an enlarged prostate or any kind of prostate disease, not prostate cancer, but more enlarged prostate, is, is difficulty urinating, a slower stream. It's they. It takes a little while to empty the bladder, and when you empty the and when you feel you're done going to the bathroom, you're not sure if you emptied all of the bladder. You may wake up at night a few more times. Um, so those are the main, you know, symptoms that you'll have with an enlarged prostate. Um, it's not really until you get to the later stages of the diseases of the prostate. If your if your prostate is so enlarged and you can't empty your bladder completely. It can affect your bladder health. It can affect your kidney health. You can get urinary tract infections, and that's when we have to be really aggressive with treatments. Um, because it is a male sexual organ associated with a ejaculatory function, some men might see a decrease in ejaculation as the prostate gets bigger as well. So it's mainly silent until you know men start noticing changes in their in their urinary uh, symptoms, and that's usually the first thing that happens. But Again, that's more for enlarged prostate, and I know we'll get into it later, but prostate cancer very rarely has any symptoms. Okay. Well, and before we get into BPH, I just wanted to ask uh, about prostatitis. What are the causes, the symptoms, and tell us a little bit about how it's treated and how long it lasts, and give us an overview. So prostatitis is is a tough one, um, and and that's because often men are diagnosed with prostatitis when they don't really have it, to be honest. Um, but in general, prostatitis is inflammation of the prostate gland. You know, you can have inflammation anywhere, and, and it always ends with an itis. So arthritis is inflammation of your joints. Prostatitis is inflammation of your prostate, and that can be done in various different ways. You could have a bacterial infection, uh, which generally you have acute symptoms, fever, very, a lot of difficulty and pain with urination, but that's pretty rare and that's treated with antibiotics. The more common presentation is just a, a low level pain in the pelvis, difficulty urinating. You might notice some lower abdominal and even back pain. Um, and that's where it becomes complicated because that's more of a what's called a chronic pelvic pain syndrome. And prostatitis is just one component of many things within that syndrome. Um, so, but, but that's what prostatitis is. I do think that men are overdiagnosed with it. And if they're just being given antibiotics over and over again for it, that's probably the wrong thing. And you have to look broadly at the, the chronic pelvic pain, which is, which is generally treated by physical therapists. But that's what prostatitis is in general. We'll see a lot of men that are quote-unquote, diagnosed with prostatitis, and it really isn't primary prostatitis. And you're not really sure, because I just wanted to clarify, in terms of the cause? They're really, yeah, we don't know, Um, like many things, and that's one of my favorite answers (laughs) that I learned from uh, one of my mentors. His favorite thing to say was, I don't know. Um, And there are many theories. I mean, certainly acute bacterial prostatitis is a bacterial infection. That's an easy one, and we can treat that with with antibiotics, but for the chronic pelvic pain syndrome, there are lots of theories. Is there a chemical reaction to urine refluxing back into the ejaculatory duct, or is it other other things? We we really don't know. Um, there are many theories, but it has not been kind of pinned down. All right. Well, then let's move into 
what you've mentioned several times, the benign prostatic hyperplasia, BPH. Is this more common in older men? Are, are there certain risk factors that are associated with age? Uh, tell us more about that. Absolutely. Age is the number one risk factor. So as we get older, our prostates naturally get bigger in over 90% of men. And the reason for that is, again, because the prostate is a, is a sexual organ, it is un, it's influenced by our hormones, and that in, in particular is testosterone in men. So the prostate is continually being exposed to testosterone. So over time, that testosterone will stimulate prostate growth uh, in some men more than others. And that's why as we get older, our prostates will naturally get bigger. And that is a benign process. Um, but age is the is the number one factor. Some people may say, you know, is there a, a familial risk? Maybe, uh, but not really. It's just that it's so common in all men, uh, and age is the number one factor for that. It's just one of the natural kind of responses to aging. Does it matter, say, in terms of culture that, you know, uh, African-Americans or Asians or Hispanics and, and you know, the different... Um, races, does that make a difference? Not so much in BPH as it is in prostate cancer. So it just, okay. it, it generally happens pretty much in all men, regardless of, of race. Okay. Well, then you talked a little bit about the causes. Are the symptoms similar to, you know, of, of urgency and frequency as it were? Are there other possible symptoms as well? And, and how about complications? So the first symptoms are you notice that you're, the, although it may take a long time, but you start to notice that your urinary stream is slower. Uh, and sometimes it, it becomes very, very bothersome uh, to, to even just empty your bladder. And those are the first symptoms that we see. Eventually, men can get, as a, resp as a response from that, their bladders become irritated from having to push so hard against the prostate to get the urine out that that can lead to bladder urgency, the frequency of urination, uh, and other symptoms that go along with that. As far as, as what can happen afterwards, like I said, eventually in very severe cases, men may not be able to go to the bathroom at all. So their, their, their urinary stream is completely blocked. Um, if they are urinating against a, a large prostate, there could be a lot of pressure generated in the bladder, and that can lead to bladder dysfunction eventually, where the bladder becomes weaker and weaker, uh, and even sometimes kidney dysfunction or kidney failure, although that's extremely rare, thankfully, because we're, we're able to treat these conditions much earlier on, usually before it gets to that point. And so the symptoms that you've just described, is that usually how the BPH is diagnosed, or is there other kinds of tests specifically for this condition? Yeah, you you know, when we see men that are, you know, in their 50s or 60s, you, you presume that there's some element of BPH going on because that's just the natural natural course of things and and the main the main reason to intervene uh is for symptomatic relief really. But we will do other tests to make sure they're not that men are not getting to those later stages. We can do tests to to measure how much urine is left in the bladder after they go to the bathroom. And if they're emptying their bladder, then that's, that's fairly safe. You know, we, we will do our prostate exams uh, to get a, an idea of how big the prostate is just in our minds. 
Um, although I should say, you know, how large the prostate is does not always necessarily dictate how severe the symptoms are. Um, men with enlarged prostates, but only minimally enlarged prostates can have severe symptoms while men with, you know, grapefruit size prostates might not feel anything at all. Um, other tests we can do are ultrasound of the prostate again, to, to look at the size and shape of it. Um, and that can dictate future, future treatments. Um, and also just urinalysis, you know, taking a look within the urine, um, making sure that there are no infections, making sure there's no blood in the urine. These are normal components of a routine visit with a urologist. So now that the, you've made the diagnosis, let's talk about the medications that are prescribed for, for BPH. I, I understand there are different kinds and some can have some maybe serious side effects or not so serious side effects. What'd you tell us about how, what the medications are, how you determine who gets what and, and also those side effects? For sure. So like I said, the beginning of, of BPH is really symptomatic relief. So the first, the, our first job is to get a measure of how bothered the patient is by the symptoms. Um, and also to make sure, again, like I said, they're not holding on to too much urine where it's going to risk their bladder and kidney function. Um, if everything is clear from that standpoint, we'll start medications. I, I basically will tell the patient, you tell me when you're bothered, because like you said, the medications can have side effects. Um, if, if a patient is bothered enough, then the first medication I would go to, most urologists would go to, is in the category called alpha blockers. And what those are are essentially muscle relaxers. They relax the muscle in the prostate as well as the bladder to reduce the tension and reduce the pressure that's there so the bladder can, can empty much, much easier. It doesn't affect the size of the prostate, um, but it does decrease the tension and actually improves symptoms more than the other class of, of medications, which is, is for me a secondary medication, and those are called 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. Um, essentially what that does is decrease the, the type of testosterone that influences the prostate growth. So it's, it affects the hormones uh, in, in a man, essentially, and it, can, and it can affect the overall testosterone in a man. Um, these tend to take a much longer time to see any symptomatic relief through anywhere from three to six months. These will eventually shrink the prostate by about 30%. Um, but the side effects to that can be sexual side effects such as uh, a low libido. And if you start these in younger men, they can have erectile dysfunction um, really a, a lifetime. So that, that's something that I'm not very keen on starting people on. But as far as the alpha blockers go, especially the newer, um, you know, the, the newer versions of the alpha blockers, they're fairly safe. Um, the, the first thing that can happen with those is, is a little bit of lightheadedness. Um, so we ask men to take it at night to, so that it doesn't bother them during the day. And as long as men can tolerate that, there's really not much uh, severe side effect to the alpha blocker. One other thing that men might not like, however, is that some of these medications may cause a condition. I wouldn't call it a condition because it's not, it, it, it doesn't have any health uh, risk, but it can cause retrograde ejaculation, which means when a man has an orgasm, the ejaculate doesn't come out uh, uh, frontwards. It goes back into the bladder. Um, and again, that doesn't have any health consequences, but in some men that might not be desirable. 
One thing I'd also heard in terms of a side effect is maybe some difficulty uh, breathing. If you've got like an somebody who's maybe asthmatic or has uh, gets stopped up easily, is that sometimes a symptom? Have you heard that or not so much? I have not. <laughs> You'd have to okay. refer what you've heard that from me, but I, that is not something that uh, I have seen. Um, maybe in the earlier iterations, men, again, would get, it could lower the blood pressure very quickly and then they would get, uh, they would get dizzy, but that's, that's not a common thing that we deal with. Well, I guess there's individual cases uh, for, yes, for these medications. And so is, is the medications usually the primary treatment of choice then for BPH, or do you also have other treatment options um, that you might prescribe for your patients? So we always like to start with medications, um, because if we're not using medications, it means we're, we're moving towards surgical treatments, which... Um, you know, can have risks and, and, and other issues. So medications are always the front line. And as we get on, if, the, if over 5, 10 years, the, the symptoms become worse, we can add more medications. Uh, understandably, at some point, patients may not want to take these medications anymore. And, you know, their, their medication list is growing as they get older. So in those situations, we may do, you know, elective surgery to to reduce the size or take out the blockage that the, the, the prostate is causing. And now these are surgeries not to remove the entire prostate, but just to get the blockage that's getting in the way of bladder out. Um, so those would be the next steps. And I guess what then what you're saying is that the medications that you talked about a moment ago, unless there is some other kind of intervention, they would be taking the medications probably the rest of their life or until the prostate size um, decreased. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, it's, I mean, that, and that's a great point. And that's something that I always bring up with men is that once we start you on this medication, this isn't, you know, a two-week course and then your prostate is cured. This is, you're on these medications every day uh, if you want the symptomatic relief. So, um, right, you know, basically they stay on those medications and, and, if all of the symptoms remain stable, they have to stay on it. Uh, and it's when those medications stop working is when we go to the next step, which would be the surgical therapies. Okay. Well, let's move into what you also have uh, focused on in terms of as, as a surgeon. But, but let's start out with prostate cancer because we hear so much about it. So explain what are the risk factors? What, what are the causes? What, what do you see? So prostate cancer is incredibly common, uh, as, as I'm sure you're well aware. Um, the risk factors, the number one risk factor is a family history. And that's not a distant relative. It's a, what we call primary relative. So if a father or a brother or, you know, I guess even a son, although that's pretty rare, if, if someone in your family has had prostate cancer, then, then your risk is much higher than the general population. You have about a one in five chance of developing prostate cancer at some point in your life, and that's compared to a one in nine risk in the general population. The, the second risk factor is African-American males um, with or without family history. So African-American men, even without a family history, have a one in six chance of being diagnosed with prostate cancer. Again, that's versus one in nine 
uh, in the general community in the United States. Um, and along with that, unfortunately, African-American men also have a, about a two times increased risk of prostate cancer death than the general population. So those are the two big risk factors are family history and African-American race. Um, now, as far as symptoms, did we already, did you ask about symptoms? No, but you can, um, we're going to take a, sh a break shortly, but uh, right now I just wanted to just clarify and then we can take a break and then we can come back. I, so those are the major causes. So there isn't, I guess I just wanted to clarify. So it's not really something that a person does or doesn't do in terms of lifestyle. It's more race and family history that are the primary causes. Just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, so those are... Those are the main risk factors that we look for when deciding to screen someone for prostate cancer. Now, as far as, you know, behavioral choices and what can lead to prostate cancer, um, it, it, you know, like I said earlier, obesity is associated with worse prostate cancer outcomes, but not necessarily increased risk of prostate cancer, but it could be. Uh, and there's been some correlation with smoking as well, but none of that is as strong as the family history or race. Okay. Well, we're going to be talking a lot now about prostate cancer in the second half of this program, but we're going to take a short break right now for an important message. First of all, if you tuned in late, we're talking with Dr. Keith Kowalczyk, Director of Urologic Oncology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And you're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Keith Kowalczyk, Director of Urologic Oncology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And we just started discussing prostate cancer and already covered risks and factors. And so Dr. Kowalczyk, talk about the early warning signs and symptoms of prostate cancer. What do men need to be aware of? Well, they, what they need to be aware of, it's, it's I guess, a blessing and a curse that prostate cancer is in, it's asymptomatic in the great majority of patients. Um, if, if a patient presents with symptoms of prostate cancer, that would generally be blood in the urine, a lot of difficulty urinating, back pain, um, potentially you know, swelling in the legs. That's generally very progressed late stage prostate cancer. Um, and we do not see that thankfully very much anymore. Uh, and that's because of PSA screening before PSA was introduced in the, in the, the mid nineties. Unfortunately, that is how a, a lot of men would present. But in this day and age where we are screening, uh, with PSAs, we're finding these cancers five to 10 years earlier than we did before PSA. So thankfully the majority, great majority are asymptomatic. And 
thank you for going into or leading us into the very next important question, because we really want to hear a lot about the prostate-specific antigen, the PSA. Explain to us exactly, what does it measure? How is it performed? Uh, What are the different levels? What's normal? What's abnormal? Give us a tutorial about PSA test. Okay, now now you're now you're delving into some of my favorite topics. You can you can shut me off when you need to. But <laughs> the the v- PSA is prostate specific antigen. It's a protein that's made by the prostate and, and pretty much only the prostate. And its job is we talked about how the prostate was related uh, for ejaculatory functions for men. And actually, the PSA is the protein that liquefies the semen to make the transport much easier. Um, and so that's, that's what PSA is for. Now, we can measure it in the blood. It's released into the bloodstream. And in the 80s, they, they came up with the tests where we were able to measure levels of PSA in the blood. It was not used for a screening tool. A screening tool is to find cancer early, um, but more uh, for kind of measuring how, how progressive a disease was and, and this and that. So in the mid-90s is when it started to be used for screening, and everybody was screened because prostate cancer mortality was high. Uh, Men presented, like I said, with very late stages of disease, uh, and we wanted to find it earlier so this wouldn't happen. Um, So everybody got screened, uh, or or everyone was recommended, all men uh, over 50 were recommended that they have a PSA test, which is a blood test. It's just a simple blood test. and that's, and that's it. And then we can take it from there and see what the risk of prostate cancer is. However, that also led to a double-edged sword, which we didn't really realize until, you know, the, the mid to late knots or maybe a little earlier than that, which is we're finding all prostate cancers now. But do all of them necessarily need to be treated? Um, I, I guess we didn't know what to do with all these various PSA levels that we were getting. Um, so that did lead to pretty much treatment for many, many men who likely didn't need treatment. On the, on the flip side, though, mortality went down by about 80%. So the, the, the death from prostate cancer did go down by a lot because of PSA screening. But there were a lot of men that were treated that probably did not have to. Uh, and we, we had to reckon with that over the last 10 years, and I think we've gotten to a point where we are doing much more smarter, much smarter PSA screening. And explain to us the what is uh, the, what are the normal values of uh, when we talked about the the different levels. Is there a, a good level and a not so good level and a really bad level? And are there numbers that that if for people who are listening right now, what would they want to know? What would you tell them in terms of what they should look for? I can tell you that every man's PSA is going to be different for the most part. And I think one of the unfortunate parts with PSA screening is that we put it in there almost like it was a cholesterol test or a blood sugar test where we knew there were good and bad levels. And that was pretty much said to be between zero and four. If your PSA was less than four, then you were normal. And that's just not accurate because the PSA changes as we get older. We talked about how as we get older, our prostates get bigger. If, if, our, if we have more prostate tissue, it will produce more PSA. 
So a PSA of four in a 40-year-old, I'm very concerned about because they should not have a PSA that's that high. On average, a PSA in a 40-year-old is about 1.0 or so. Whereas if somebody is in their 70s and their PSA is four, I'm not concerned at all because the age-adjusted PSA level for someone who's older is probably anywhere between five and six. So that's one thing that I want to stress is that PSA levels will change as you get older because one of the things that causes a PSA elevation besides prostate cancer is an enlarged prostate. So you can have false positives. But, and, and I want to get that idea of normal between zero and four. That's, that's not a thing for me. Um, you know, it, 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 if, a, if a young guy has a PSA of even 3.5, I'm worried about that. Um, and what's more important for me is the trend. So, you know, someone may have a PSA that's three in their 60s, and that's fine. That's normal. Um, and then it starts going up to six to nine. That's much more concerning to me that it's jumped so high versus someone that, that same person who their PSA was nine in their sixties, but it's nine the next year and nine the next year. Well, that's just their normal PSA. So there's no one level that's correct. The importance is establishing a baseline in that patient, what their PSA is, go over their individual risk factors and follow it over time to see if, if that PSA is abnormal for them or not. And is that one of the reasons why, because you're explaining so many different variables here, is that why there's, there seems to be so much controversy related to whether or not physicians should use the PSA test for, for patients? I mean, is it age? Is it uh, what? I mean, why is it more controversial? It's controversial because at first it was used to screen everybody. The question okay. is, everybody need to be screened? And the answer is no. However, it is still the second leading cause of cancer death in men. So ignoring a PSA screening altogether is going to lead to an increased risk of high-risk disease, you know, disease presenting at later stages, and even prostate cancer death. So the controversy really was over, does everybody need to be screened? And unfortunately, I feel that that was taken as, you know, when there was a little bit of a backlash against it, which has since been taken back. Um, you know, a lot of primary care physicians were saying, you don't need to check PSA. And, and that's not true. That's just not true. And that's especially in men that we went over that are at high risk, African-American men, men that have a family history. They need to be screened. So... The controversy is, does everybody need to be screened? The answer is no. Men at risk do need to be screened. And even some men that aren't at risk should probably have a PSA, a single PSA checked at some point in their life to make sure that it is not above a certain threshold. Uh, and if, if they want to, can maybe get it checked every two years, every three years if they don't have risk factors, but they probably don't need to be checked every year. So over the last 10 years, we've gotten to this more selective screening approach. Um, and, and the controversy, yes, it's because a lot of men were overdiagnosed because of these false positives. But if, if there's any question, you know, that a family, a family practitioner or a primary care doctor might have regarding PSA screening in a certain patient, I would just recommend sending them to a urologist because we're, we're very open to not 
screening everybody. We might not, we're not going to necessarily biopsy everybody or treat everybody. There are a lot of nuances to PSA that I wouldn't expect a primary care physician to know all about. Um, because like I was getting into, it, it, it can be very complicated. If I'm hearing you correctly, then there really isn't an official accepted recommendation about PSA screening. It's really a case-by-case basis. Is that what you would say? There are different recommendations by different organizations, but the majority, American Cancer Society, the American Urologic Association, do recommend at least discussing screening with your primary care doctor between the ages of 55 and 70, because those are the men that are most at risk. In men who have the risk factors that we discussed, African-American, a family history in a father, brother, or son, they potentially should be screened earlier, possibly starting between 40 and 45, and again, should be discussed with their primary care physician or a urologist. So there are conflicting views on this, but the majority of cancer associations do feel that uh, PSA screening should be discussed and seriously considered, especially in at-risk men. Now, since we've heard so much about PSAs, are there actually other screening tests now that are also used to detect prostate cancer? PSA is still the linchpin kind of gatekeeper test to know whether you are at risk or not of having prostate cancer. Now, we've established many, many what I would call kind of second level confirmatory tests to see if there's a false positive or not. So if we get a high PSA in somebody, what we want to do, we, we don't want to overdiagnose people. We don't want to put people through a biopsy and, and we don't want to put people through treatment unless they absolutely need it. So sometimes we'll get these secondary tests, which are a little more specific, or I should say a little more sensitive than the PSA. So PSA, it's, it's called prostate-specific antigen. It means exactly that, but it's not prostate cancer-specific. It's, it's anything within the prostate. These second-level tests are more prostate cancer-specific. So there are blood tests such as a 4K score uh, or a PHI, prostate health index, which look at more of the nitty-gritty. They don't just look at the total PSA. They actually look at the breakdown products of PSA that are more associated with prostate cancer to tell you what what is the actual risk that this elevation in PSA is due to cancer and not another prostate, a benign prostate disease. Another simple thing that we'll often do, most, most uh, urologists will do, is get something called a total to free ratio, which looks at the ratio of the varying types of PSA. So when we get a PSA result, that's a sum of the total PSA, but there's actually subtypes. And the ratios of those subtypes can tell us whether there's an increased risk of prostate cancer or not. So these are the the next level things that we as urologists do to see, does this patient really need a biopsy or the next step, or can we just simply monitor their PSA very, very closely? Um, There's also urinary tests that look for kind of prostate cancer byproducts in the urine. Um, And then what has really changed prostate cancer diagnosis, treatment, and management in the last 10 to 15 years is MRI of the prostate. Um, Now, MRI obviously is not easy. It's not a blood test. It's not a urine test. It's a much bigger deal. It's more expensive. Um, But that can also rule out higher risk prostate cancers. So that's become a a game changer for for us in the last 10 to 15 years. Um, But with all of this come costs, uh, and we have to be cognizant of that. So I will usually start, if I have a patient come in with an elevated PSA, the first thing I do is check a total to free ratio 
I repeat the PSA. I try to get a sense of what what has the what has been the trend of their PSA over time to see if you really have to take these next steps. And that leads me to how what you're most involved with, um, and you started explaining it exactly. What is the thinking then that determines what treatment is going to be? Um, used for a particular patient. So obviously there's a lot of analysis there, but talk a little bit more about that. How, how do you determine then? You're, you're a surgeon, so and we're, I'm interested to hear more about the, the type of procedure that you do, but is that always the case? So and then so let's move into it that way. Yeah, so while I am a surgeon, you know I, I'm a urologic oncologist first, uh, and that's what I tell everybody. And and we are really the gatekeepers um, because we are the ones that will see the elevated PSAs, get the biopsy, and give the patient the diagnosis. So it's really incumbent on us as urologists to, to be fair and unbiased on all of the treatment options. And there are many, many different treatment options for prostate cancer, um, many of which are very, very good. When, when a man is diagnosed with localized or, or prostate cancer that hasn't spread, uh, when they're diagnosed with localized prostate cancer, their their risk of death from prostate cancer overall is, is less than 1% because our treatments are so good. So the key is finding the right treatment for that patient, and it's not black and white. Uh, it's gray all over. So you first have to think about prostate cancer history. So the, the natural progression of prostate cancer is that it's a very slow-growing cancer. Yes, it is a lethal cancer if left untreated, you know, for 5, 10, 15 years, but it is not the type of cancer like a pancreatic cancer or a lung cancer that, you know, will progress within one to two years. It's a cancer where it's going to take quite a, a bit of time to really uh, become bad. So in general, prostate cancer takes about 10 to 15 years if you find it at an early stage to really progress. So you have to, number one, take into account what is that patient's life expectancy uh, and what are their competing risks? What other health health issues that they have that will be more of an issue to them within the next five to ten years? Um, so, if if a patient is is younger, in their forties up to up to seventy, even for me, uh, or certainly less than sixty five, generally those men have life expectancies of over ten to fifteen years. They have less of a risk of cardiovascular disease. So, prostate cancer is high on the list of something that may become problematic for them within the next 10 to 15 years. So we tend to recommend surgery for those younger patients that don't have really any what we call competing risks and, and have a, a, a very long life expectancy because surgery for the most part has the, 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 less, the least amount of risk that that cancer will come back within 15 to, to 20 years. So it, it's the best shot at having a, having a treatment that will not require any further treatments down the road, essentially. No, I was going to say, and is that the Retzius sparing robotic prostatectomy? Well, I'm, I'm talking about prostate, I'm talking about prostatectomy in general. Okay. Retzius, Retzius sparing is, is how I do it. There are many ways to skin a cat. Um, but when I do the surgery, yeah, that would be Retzius sparing. Well, and explain the different kinds of prostatectomy then. I'm, I'm eager to hear more about the Retzius sparing robotic prostatectomy because I think that's a relatively new procedure. Uh, it is. What would so, you tell us? Again, that's when I was talking about picking surgery, that was, I, was, I was just referring to all prostatectomies in general. And like I said, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's many good surgeons out there. 
that do it different ways and, and have good outcomes. So with that being said, I, I do perform what's called a retzia sparing prostatectomy. I've been doing that for the last three years now. Um, and it was, I did not invent the procedure. It was actually uh, described in 2010 in Italy um, by uh, Antonio Galfano and, and Aldo Bocciardi in Milan. And that was when I was a fellow in neurologic oncology. And I read that when it came out. I was very, very interested in it. But it's a, it's a very hard procedure to do. Um, so it took me eight years of my own practice to, to finally try to do this surgery. And essentially what it does is avoids disrupting the normal pelvic anatomy of the bladder and the urethra. Like I said, the, the prostate sits underneath the bladder and the bladder drains through the prostate and back down into the urethra. So one of the side effects of surgery which can be debilitating, is, is leakage of urine. Um, and what this does is because we leave intact a lot of these suspensory ligaments or supportive structures for the bladder, these men tend to have less urinary leakage after surgery, and they tend to regain their continence much faster. Uh, and I've noticed that it's been seen in multiple other studies as well. Um, we have yet to have any primary level one evidence, which would be a randomized control trial. Um, and that is because, like you said, it is a new procedure. But I feel as we go further and further on, uh, I do think that this will be the new gold standard of treatment because uh, I, my patient's quality of life has, has become much, much better uh, after, after adopting this procedure. And you already had talked about prostatectomy, and there's various kinds. The word that, that strikes me is the robotic. Can you help us understand a little bit more of what exactly robotic, is that different than the, the more traditional making an incision and opening up the patient to do whatever? Is this something different that occurs during this procedure? So, right, I, I left that out. It is a robotic procedure, as, is, as are the majority of prostatectomies these days, are robotic prostatectomies, over 90 95% of prostatectomies are robotic. And essentially what that is, it's an advanced laparoscopic surgery. So laparoscopic surgery are small incisions made in the abdomen with, uh, with what we call ports. Um, these little ports we're able to put instruments in and out of to do the surgery through these, a big surgery basically through these small incisions. Um, the prostate's very hard to get to. It's in the pelvis, which is very small uh, and it's deep. So it was very hard to do traditional laparoscopic surgery on the prostate. The robot changed all of that because the robot essentially, we still control the robot, but the robot allows us to have much better visualization. The instruments move with our hands. Um, we're able to, to see the nerve layers much, much better. We're able to control bleeding much, much better. And it, it, it greatly it made the surgery much, much easier. So that's why the majority of all of these surgeries are done robotically. And the benefit of that over the traditional, as you said, kind of opening up a patient or open prostatectomy is certainly less bleeding. Uh, men go home from the hospital within 24 hours. I know some people are sending their patients home on the same day. Uh, pain is, is not very bad at all. You know, at Georgetown, we are, we are completely narcotic-free. We have a narcotic-free pathway because the, the pain just really isn't too bad. Um, so robotic surgery is just essentially a very advanced laparoscopic surgery. And 
it continues to to advance. You know, every couple of years they're making improvements to the robot, which are incredible. You know, in addition to what you've already explained, uh, Dr. Kowalczyk, are, are there other procedures that can be used to to treat prostate cancer that aren't necessarily surgical? What would you tell us? Absolutely. So I was when I when I talked about prostatectomy, like I said, that was more for the younger, healthier patients. But even even in those patients, and certainly in our older patients that have many other competing risks, radiation is is the other mainstay of treatment. Um, and like I was saying, there are more than one ways to skin a cat with surgery. There's more than one way to skin a cat with radiation. So that can be in multiple different ways. There's the uh, radioactive seeds. There's the traditional radiation treatment that can be anywhere from six to eight weeks, and that's called intensity modulated uh, radiation therapy. There's uh, stereotactic body radiation therapy, or SBRT. That's also known as CyberKnife, uh, which is five days of treatment, uh, and then there's also proton beam therapy, which I'm not a big fan of, but uh, it is out there. So all of these are very good procedures. They're non-surgical, uh, and they, they're they especially better for patients that have other health problems because they don't have to go through the surgery. Um, and if they're older, you know, radiation outcomes are still excellent at over 10 years. So especially men with a 10-year life expectancy or so, uh, that is our preferred treatment option. And with all of these various treatment options, is it, I mean, you're talking about life expectancy with some and, and depending on the age of the patient and, and some other factors, but can prostate cancer actually recur after the treatment, whether it's radiation or surgical? Um, and, and if so, are the symptoms different than earlier ones? Or how do you uh, deal with patients that, in which that's the case? Yeah, like any cancer, prostate cancer can recur. Like I said, 99% of men will still live from prostate cancer, but in up to 20 to 30% of them, the cancer may come back, um, and that's with surgery or, or radiation. Like I said, surgery, it tends to happen later on, over 10 to 15 years, but not always. Uh, radiation can sometimes happen earlier. Um, but that's where PSA comes to save us again because we are able to monitor the recurrence of prostate cancer just with a blood test, whereas other cancers we have to get CAT scans every so often, and we don't detect a recurrence of the disease until we can actually see it on a CAT scan. Whereas with prostate cancer, we can detect it with just minimal increases of PSA, which should be either extremely low or non-existent after treatment. So when that happens, we can move towards our secondary or third-line therapies uh, as needed, which is why men tend to live so long, is because we're able to detect these recurrences very, very quickly. Uh, now, in a man that's had surgery, and, and they, if, they, if their cancer comes back, we'll generally start radiation in that patient. We can still do radiation. If a man has had radiation and it comes back, there are fewer options, but we can do other things like freeze the prostate. Um, sometimes they can even do more radiation. Uh, and in some patients, we may have to put them on hormonal therapies to keep their testosterone down, although we try to avoid that at all costs. So in many of them, we'll just kind of watch and wait and make sure that it doesn't spread any further. Um, but yeah, just like any cancer, the, you know, the overall number is 20 to 30%. That varies based on how aggressive the cancers are. Um, but because of PSA, we're able to find these recurrences early. One thing I was also wondering is if a man has prostate cancer, 
and it's not successfully treated with cancer or if it's too um, advanced, is there other certain kinds of cancer then that are associated with prostate cancer? I'm thinking that sometimes there's also a possibility of bone cancer. Is that... Uh, is there a relationship between those, or what, what would you tell us in terms of what occurs? Or so that's occur? still right. It's still prostate cancer. It's not associated with other cancers, but when it spreads, the prostate cancer cells will initially go normally to the bone and the uh, the spine and the lower back, uh, or the ribs or other areas, and and also to the lymph nodes in the pelvis. So, with advanced stages of prostate cancer, that's where we'll generally see. Uh, the beginning of, of the spread is to the bones and the local lymph nodes. But as it spreads, you can see, it, you know, spread anywhere from the liver, uh, you know, to worst cases, the brain. Um, but thankfully, you know, that's, that's pretty rare, again, because of early recognition, early diagnosis and treatment. And in fact, to that point, uh, based on everything that you've told us, it sounds like the outlook for prostate cancer survival is quite good. Would you reinforce that or tell us that again or yeah and i like to tell that's kind of how i start and stop every talk with all of my prostate cancer patients when i can is that you know you're going to live you know you're it's very unlikely uh, it's possible but since we found it early you're very unlikely to die from prostate cancer but the the secondary effects like we talked about the cancer coming back and needing more treatments um, again that can happen up to 20 to 30 percent of patients and or the those who it spreads to the bone or lymph nodes while we're still very good at at treating these recurrences and and keeping these men alive that that can still have substantial side effects and that can still have substantial decreases in quality of life because of the treatments that we give them so um that's why i just want to stress that you know while many patients live from prostate cancer uh, it can still be a debilitating disease, and you can't always say that survival from the cancer itself is the number one thing that we should be looking at. The the number one thing we should be looking at is is keeping these men's active, keeping these men active and healthy, with good quality of life. Um, and then you know that's one of the reasons why we're adapting the surgical technique, you know, with retzia sparing and also adapting adapting radiation, you know, to have less treatments. So the prognosis is excellent, but we also want to, to minimize as much as possible the, the side effects of a recurrence of cancer and the treatments that come with that. Um, and I think that's something that, you know, I'm going a little off here, but the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force in 2012 gave a grade D recommendation to PSA screening, but their, their primary outcome was survival. And, well, you know, if you look at survival of prostate cancer, it's very good. And they weren't taking into account metastasis or spread or quality of life. And, and to their, to, to be fair, you know, they did take that back in 2016, but, um, yeah. So to, I know it's a long answer to a short question, but survival is excellent. Um, and, and we're trying to keep these men free from any other treatments as well. Okay. And we're just about out of time. Uh, in 20 seconds, are there any recommended resources that you would advise our listeners to learn more about prostate health and treatment? Yeah, two uh, uh, wonderful resources. One is from the American Urologic Association, is the uh, Urology Care Foundation website, and that's that's found at urologyhealth.org. It has really excellent patient resources on, on 
all urologic conditions, benign and cancerous. Now, specific for prostate cancer, I do like the, the Prostate Cancer Foundation website. And that it's simply at pcf.org, Prostate Cancer Foundation. Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Keith Kowalsik, Director of Urologic Oncology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital for joining me today. And if you want to learn more about Aging Matters, be sure to visit our website at agingmattersonline.com. And once you're at this site, you can access all Aging Matters radio and TV show content, as well as the podcasts, which this program and all radio programs are both on Apple and Spotify. In addition, you can subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter. That way you'll get updates every month on new radio shows and TV episodes. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, which you can learn more about at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to Aging Matters. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Thank you.